Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. We have reached the end of our study through the book of Isaiah, not every passage of course, but uh, selected passages. And so this morning, we are in the last chapter, chapter 66. Now it should not surprise us that what we find here in this chapter is a prophecy, a prediction about the future. Not a prediction, as we've seen multiple times, of Israel returning to the promised land after 70 years of captivity. Instead, this prediction looks further into the future, to a time, first of all, when Jesus came initially and it began to be filled, but ultimately this prediction looks even beyond that to the time when Jesus will come again and establish his new kingdom. The bodily and visible return of Jesus is one of the fundamental and essential doctrines of our faith. I'm considering at some point pulling all of these, what we might call first-tier doctrines together into a series, even though I've preached on all of them from time to time in isolation, I thought about pulling them all together, especially in a time when we are divided over so many things, to pull these first-tier doctrines together and say, these are the things that unite us. These are the doctrines that must be believed in order to be an Orthodox Christian. Doctrines like the virgin birth of Jesus, his deity, man's sinfulness, and the exclusive nature of salvation in and through Jesus, the bodily resurrection of Jesus that we talked about a few weeks ago on Easter Sunday. I'm not trying to claim these are all of them. I'm just giving you some examples. Now, under all of these doctrines, we might disagree about the specifics That is, we might have some disagreements about the nature of salvation or how Christ is going to return, things like that. But these are the things that we must believe. And so that is equally true of our topic this morning, the bodily and visible return of Jesus. Yes, we will surely disagree on the timing the events that precede or follow, and a host of other details surrounding this fascinating and confusing time to come. Many churches and denominations divide along these lines. That is, you must believe these specifics about the return of Christ in order to be in fellowship with our church or with our denomination. But we do not do that. We do not divide along those specific lines. We simply say, you must believe in the return of Christ, even though we can disagree about the details. In fact, we can have healthy debates about the details while maintaining a belief in the event itself. But you might ask, why is the visible and bodily bodily return of Jesus one of the fundamental doctrines of our faith? Well, one, because it is so clearly proclaimed in the Bible. Plus, Jesus himself said that he would come, and so it is a promise from him. After his ascension, when the disciples had seen him go into heaven, two angels said this, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? 
This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So even as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the resurrection confirmed the work on the cross. That is, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then the substitutionary sacrifice on the cross is null and void. Likewise, if Jesus does not come again, then his work on the cross and his resurrection are therefore null and void because he said he was going to come again to take us to be with him forever. That is why this is a foundational belief in our faith. So this morning, we're not going to talk about dates nor times. We are not going to talk about the signs that we are to look for. We are not going to talk about what heaven is going to be like or what we are going to do there with one exception. Instead, what I want to talk about from this text are two things that Jesus is going to bring with him when he comes. We are acknowledging that he's going to come again. The question is, what will he bring? And the answer from this text is this. He will bring both judgment and hope. Now, I know those two things sound like they can't possibly go together. How can he bring both judgment and hope when he comes again? Well, because some people will experience great judgment at the return of Christ. Other people will experience great hope. And that is why we can have both in the same event. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 66. We are going to begin reading in verse 15, and then we are going to finish out the book. Verse 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice, shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts. And the time is coming together all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Our text begins with the statement, the Lord will come. 
So we're taking that for granted. We're acknowledging that this is a belief that we all hold that at some time in the future, the Lord is going to come again. And then the question is, what is he going to bring with him? First of all, we see that the Lord brings judgment. We see this in the first few verses along with the last verse of the book. Judgment and hope have been recurring themes throughout this letter, and therefore it is no surprise that he's going to end with these twin ideas. Now some of you grew up frequently hearing sermons about judgment and hell, and they are not so popular anymore either with people or with preachers. We much prefer to dwell on more positive topics, uplifting and encouraging subjects that are more likely to help us live our lives daily. I mean, after all, don't we get enough bad news throughout the week? We don't need to come on Sunday morning and hear further negative news. Well, I agree. I much prefer encouraging sermons, but I am tasked with preaching and you are tasked with hearing the whole counsel of God, not just the parts that we like. Furthermore, the judgment passages are in one sense an encouragement, a warning of what is to come so that we can avoid the judgment that is to come by trusting in Christ. So even as a parent warns a child of danger, And we don't find this cruel or offensive of a parent to warn a child. In fact, we say this is what a loving parent is supposed to do. Likewise, our loving God is warning us of what is to come so that we can humble ourselves and accept his salvation. In fact, this is one reason the Bible says that his coming has been delayed, although I acknowledge that using the word delayed is not a good word to use when talking about the coming of Christ. But from our perspective, it has been delayed because God wants many people to repent rather than to face the judgment when he does come. So the question then is, to whom will the Lord bring judgment when he comes rather than hope? And I think we see two answers in this text. First of all, the Lord will come and will bring judgment to the self-righteous. Now, I'm not going to dissect all of the imagery in the first couple of verses, but clearly fire is a symbol not only of the presence of the Lord, but it is a symbol of the judgment of God. And when the Lord returns, he is not going to come to assess the situation. He is not going to come to hear someone's opinion or uh, their, their views on the situation. He is going to come to act. And that action will be swift and awful judgment. Verse 17 is where I get the, self, the self-righteous portion of this point. Those who think they can purify or sanctify themselves which is simply another way of saying that those who through religion or sacrifice think they can make themselves right with God. Now we talked about this a little bit last week when I said that no one is capable of saving themselves in spite of the fact that that is a very popular uh, opinion. Here there is also the element of idol worship, bringing animals and offerings, hoping to appease a false God. Now, of course, we've seen throughout this book that idol worship was one of the major reasons that God had brought all of this judgment and destruction upon them. They had brought in other gods, and as a result, God had brought these things upon them. But that does not mean that the false worship had ceased, nor has it ended in our own day. 
but one day it will end. All idol worship will be shown to be false, and the true God in all his glory will be seen as such. Now, I don't know what the mice are all about in these verses. Did you catch that? I don't know what that's about. I'll just be honest with you. I do know that we've had some mice in our offices the last couple of weeks. We've already caught and disposed of two, and there is a third even now lying in state in our offices. If someone wants to volunteer afterwards to discard that, you are more than welcome to do that. What I do know is that when we caught these mice, none of us said we ought to eat these. None of us said we ought to somehow use these in worship. Those thoughts never came to our mind. So I don't know what they were doing here, but I know we're not doing it. But stranger things have occurred through false worship, all of which, of course, will come to an end. So regardless of the specifics, we hear and understand again that no one can purify themselves and be made right with God. Not only is it not possible due to the pervasive nature of sin in our lives, but it also flies in the face of what Jesus accomplished. In other words, if you and I are capable of saving ourselves, that is, if we can purify or sanctify ourselves through, through offerings or through sacrifice or through good deeds, then what Jesus did on the cross was unnecessary and God's plan was foolish. Now, I recognize that most people do not think in those terms, but that's what you're saying when you think you can be righteous by your own efforts. You are at the same time saying that you are good enough, which the Bible says absolutely that you are not, and that the sacrifice of Christ wasn't good enough or certainly was unnecessary. In other words, the self-righteous approach to salvation is clearly opposed to everything the gospel stands for and teaches. Therefore, those who rely on their own self-righteousness to be made right with God will be among those who will be judged by God when the Lord comes again. But there is a second category in this text. Not only will the Lord bring judgment upon the self-righteous, but he will also bring judgment upon the rebellious. We see this in the last verse in very graphic terms. Frankly, this is a very chilling way to end a phenomenal book. I mean, again, we want things to end on a positive note. We much prefer, like the book of Revelation, that ends by saying, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Or we like the way Paul ends a lot of his letters, saying grace and peace to the people to whom he is writing. But Isaiah ends with a crowded cemetery just outside a renewed city. That's another thing we don't like, right? We don't like judgment, and we don't like cemeteries. And so the fact that I've combined both of these into one sermon likely means you don't like this sermon either. So that's three things that we don't like. Cemeteries are very, de very depressing places to be. And for some people, they're somewhat scary. Yes, we try to make them look as nice as possible with freshly mowed lawns and flowers and nice headstones. But so it's a way of respecting those who have gone before us. But the fact is, most of us simply don't like being there. But that's not the picture we have here in this last verse. The picture is the people passing by being reminded of the consequences of rebelling against God. Cemeteries are, in fact, reminders. And not just because we can read the names and the dates on the headstones of our loved ones. It's a reminder 
that we are alive. It's not socially acceptable. I was in a cemetery yesterday. And it's not socially acceptable to say this in the cemetery with other people around, but it often reminds us that we are grateful that we are, in fact, alive. Some people will be a little more specific, and you'll hear them say things like, you know, when, when you ask them how they're doing, they'll say, well, I'm, I'm not six feet under. I had a guy tell me this week, I'm still looking down at the sod. And so this cemetery idea here, and I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but it's all here to remind us that we've been saved by grace and therefore how grateful we should be. That's the image in, verse, uh, in the last verse of this text. Now, certainly we are not to gloat or even rejoice in the judgment that others receive, even though they may have been worthy to receive such judgment. But since salvation is by grace, we too deserved that same judgment. So God's judgment is to the self-righteous and the rebellious, and this serves as a reminder to us of just how gracious God has been to us in saving us. But whether this judgment comes to the self-righteous or the rebellious, what kind of judgment are we talking about? What is this judgment going to look like? Well, there are some today who want to believe in what we call annihilation. That is that you simply cease to exist when you die or when the Lord comes. Yes, you miss out on heaven and all of the glories there, but you no longer have a conscious existence. You just are no longer alive. No conscious punishment, just the missing out of heaven. And this view, while common, is not biblical. And it is a way, I think, to try to soften the judgment of God because it seems so harsh. The other alternative, and I believe it is the biblical alternative, is eternal punishment separated and apart from God. And while that does seem harsh, I think it's very clearly the picture that God paints. And it seems harsh to us because we don't fully understand the depth of our sin and the seriousness of our sin against God. It is God who has established the glories of heaven, and it is God who has established the horrors of hell. And this text certainly paints the picture of ongoing punishment, a fire that will not be quenched. Jesus called it everlasting or eternal punishment. In fact, did you know that the most frequent use of, of judgment imagery, that is the most frequent talking about the horrors of hell, are on the lips of Jesus. He talks about it more than anybody else in all of the Bible. Now, some like to argue that if Jesus doesn't say something about it, then he must condone it. That is, there are people who will take a sin and they will say, well, I know the Bible speaks about this, but Jesus didn't. And since Jesus didn't, he must be okay with it. And therefore, this is not really a sin. There are people, and I'm not encouraging this, I think it's an awful way to interpret the Bible because after all, all of the Bible is God's word. But I'm just saying there are people who do this. Now, if this is the way you're going to do it, and again, I don't encourage it, but if this is the way you're going to do it, then at least be consistent. So you simply cannot say that Jesus is too loving to send people to hell because Jesus does speak about this. In fact, as I've said, more than anyone else, and in Mark chapter 9, Jesus speaks about eternal punishment and then quotes the last verse of Isaiah to make and describe his point. So all of this should remind us of the consequences of sin. 
It is a reminder of how serious sin is against God and how seriously he will one day judge it. And therefore, it should motivate us to turn away from sin and turn to him in faith and then push us to faithful living. Well, by now, I'm sure that you are ready to move on to brighter and happier thoughts. So let's go to the second thing. Not only does Jesus bring judgment, but secondly, when the Lord comes, he will bring hope. Not hope to the self-righteous, not hope to the rebellious. It'll be too late for that, and we've already seen their destiny. So who is this hope for? Well, first of all, we see that it's hope for all nations. The idea that the gospel is for all nations and all races and all people, Gentiles and Jews alike, is not a new teaching in the New Testament. Now, granted, even the closest of Jesus' followers had a very difficult time understanding this. I mean, they really thought that the gospel was just for the Jews and that Gentiles, in order to be saved, had to become Jews. But eventually, they came to understand that salvation was not just for one group of people, but it was for all nations. Now, you do understand that when the Bible uses the word nations, it's not using it specifically as we do. We tend to think of nations as geographical or political boundaries. That is the nation of the United States that has a government and has boundaries. But the Bible is using it not in those terms, but in the terms of a people group. That is a group of people that share a culture and a language, which is why our International Mission Board uses that term, people groups to talk about groups of people who may or may not have heard the gospel. And so when we talk about nations, we're talking about people. And again, this is why we invest so much money. You've heard it just a few moments ago about the amount of money that we collected for the Easter offering. And we did so for the International Mission Board back around Christmas. We do all of this because we believe that all our sinners, that all need to be saved, and that the gospel is the only hope for all people. But I do think there's an aspect of this that we often forget. I think sometimes we fail to share the gospel, but we usually don't forget that we're supposed to. We don't share the gospel, but it's because we allow obstacles to get in our way. But there is another aspect of this that I think we do forget, and that is that we are to create a community of people in which the gospel is lived out. That therefore, as we share the gospel, there is an attraction to this community. Here's what I mean by this. Israel was a distinct people. That's why when you read the Old Testament, there's all these laws, all these differences. They were to live differently than every other nation that surrounded them. And that was not primarily for the purpose of division. That's the way it often played out. But primarily, it was not for division. It was for attraction. Meaning that they were supposed to live a different life testifying to the goodness of God so that others would be attracted to the God they follow. Their lifestyle was supposed to support their evangelism. They were to declare the glory of God with their lives so that when they shared the gospel with their lips, the saving message of God would be not only heard, but there would be an attraction to it. Instead, they were often seduced by the glory of the other nations, wanting to be like them rather than be like God, and therefore they tended to abandon God in the process. Now, here's why this is so important. If we are going to have this hope 
And this hope is for all nations. And we share this hope. That is, we go out around our neighborhood and around the world and share the gospel. And yet our lives are not significantly impacted by the gospel. Then people are going to be less likely to respond. And as the church in general has been embroiled with massive controversies over significant sins, the question then becomes, why would people want to be a part of it? In fact, this might help explain the stat I gave you last week, that for the first time uh, in eight decades of doing this survey, Gallup discovered that less than 50% of Americans are members of any kind of church. Because as the local church has been sidetracked by countless debates and divisions over less important things, it's no wonder people aren't coming. But the Lord will bring hope to all nations, a hope that has already begun with his first coming and continues through the commission that he's given us his people and us his church. But this hope needs to be proclaimed to all nations, not just through preaching the gospel, but through living our lives so that our lives are transformed with the very hope that we are teaching. And therefore, when we teach and preach, it will not fall on deaf ears. That this hope is for all nations is shockingly revealed in verse 21. Now, granted, this is a difficult passage in some ways. Sometimes it's hard to know. Is he talking about the Gentiles? Is he talking about the Jews? Who's going out? Who's coming in? Sometimes it gets a little bit confusing. But in verse 21, it does seem to say that even some among the Gentiles will become priests and Levites. Now, those categories were reserved in the Old Testament for just a certain segment of the Jews. Not even all Jews could be priests and Levites. And now he's saying that even some of the Gentiles, which means if they're not going to be excluded from this, there will not be an exclusion of any kind. So this hope is for all nations. Secondly, this hope is for a global reunion. The message of God's glory and salvation will go out and people of all nations will respond and come to the holy city, even as we sung about a few moments ago. The place names here are not as important as what they represent. That is, they represent uh, people from all directions and all distances. The means of transportation by which they come are not as important as what they represent. And that is that there will be no obstacle standing in the way of people coming to Jerusalem. All means of transportation will be employed. If you read World War II history or you saw the movie Dunkirk, you know the story of the British and French soldiers who were on the beaches of France in Dunkirk, and they were trapped. There were some 400,000 soldiers there that were under constant bombardment by German uh, air bombs. And they had no way of escape other than across the English Channel. And so in order to evacuate them back to England, every vessel was commandeered to bring men back to Britain. So you had military ships, you had fishing uh, vehicles or boats, all going back and forth across the channel, ferrying as many soldiers as possible. Something similar happened when we got out of Vietnam. Just before Saigon fell to the North Vietnamese, we were using all kinds of means of transportation, buses, planes, helicopters, flying into the embassy, taking as many of our people and those who had been with us as possible before the North Vietnamese captured the capital. And so what we see here is very similar, except it's the reverse. 
This is not an evacuation where all means are necessary to get as many people out. This is a reunion. And as many people as possible are coming. No obstacle is too great. They are responding to the Lord's hope, uniting with him. And they are coming as an offering to the Lord, both Jews and Gentiles. Leading to lastly, this hope will be for a new creation. Now here's where we want all the specifics. Where will the new heavens and the new earth be? Will this be the place that heaven is now? Or will this be a a recreated earth? What will we do there? How will we relate to one another? All of those details are not given here. Frankly, they're not given elsewhere either. I do think this is going to be a recreation of earth without all of its sin and imperfections. But we do know that it will be a place of beauty and a place of peace, a place of joy and blessing where the presence of God will be the priority and the focus and thus a place of worship, which is the one thing that is mentioned here that we will worship forever. Now, I realize that that statement, even when we're referring to a new heaven and a new earth, may not excite you. Because your image of worship is a Sunday morning church service. And the thought of doing that for even five minutes longer than we're supposed to doesn't really sit well with most of us. I had a lady in my last church. She was not a member, but for some reason, the Methodist church that was adjacent to us had loaned her to us. Um, If I went five minutes over in my sermon, she would begin jingling her keys to let everybody know that it was time for the worship service to be over with. I'm not giving you suggestions. I'm just telling you a story. So does this mean that we're going to be sitting in a worship service for all of eternity? And if that's the way we look at it, it's no wonder we're not too excited. But at least, if we worship that long, there's bound to be some music that you're going to like. Our narrow definition of worship clouds our understanding of heaven. Yes, worship is singing praises to God, but there is so much more. So we are not going to be in an eternal worship service, but we will be worshiping eternally. Which at least begs the question... Is the worship of God a priority in our lives now? Again, I'm not just confining this to the Sunday morning worship service, though it does include that. I am saying if there is little or no desire on our part for worship now, it's no reason, it's no, it's no uh, great uh, guess why we don't desire heaven. And that just might be part of the problem. Part of the problem is we don't long for that because we have a faulty view of both worship and heaven. But surely as this world continues to spiral out of control, and as we continue to see more and more evidence that things are simply upside down, we groan with all of creation for the Lord to come. And when the Lord comes, to bring with him this hope of a new creation. So how do we know when the Lord comes if we're going to receive judgment or we're going to receive hope? The simple answer, of course, is that those who are saved will receive hope and those who are not will receive judgment. And yet even here, there is so much confusion and misunderstanding concerning what biblical salvation is. Because at least in the South where we live, it seems like virtually everyone at least professes to be saved. And I've not yet gone to a funeral where it's not at least been implied that the person is now in heaven. So we've got to have a biblical understanding of what it means to be saved, not just to make a profession of faith in Christ, not just to pray a prayer, and not just to be baptized, 
but we're talking about a union and an abiding in Christ that, yes, does repent of sin and trust by faith in him. But ultimately, this is a decision that transforms our lives. It is not just something we say. It is something we believe and something we live out. Or if we go back to chapter 66, it tells us back in verse 2, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Let me pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for this time that we've had to spend in this uh, book of Isaiah. And for the many wonderful truths that we found here. Opening up to us perhaps passages of scripture that we've never, never understood or never known very well. But now we see so clearly the gospel message that is even found here in the Old Testament. And I pray that we would long for your appearance, not so that others would be judged, though they are worthy of that, but so that we would find the hope of a renewed heaven and a renewed earth, and that we could dwell with you forever. And in the meantime, I pray with our lives and our lips that we would lovingly share the message to all nations, not desiring that they face judgment, but desiring that they too repent and be saved. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing, and you respond.